team for leading us in song. The only question I have is, what instrument is Aiden going to play next week? <laughs> Taking bets after service, you can see me. We'll see what it, what it turns up, all right? My goodness. All right. Well, um, as you saw there, we are, as a church, continuing our study in the book of Acts. And so I, hopefully you've got your Bibles turned to Acts chapter 8. Um, as you're making your way there, we're in actually 4 through 25, 8, 4 through 25. One of humanity's greatest virtues is its ability to overcome adversity. I think universally recognized, one of humanity's greatest virtues is its ability to overcome adversity. You know, this past year, my wife and I decided we just needed sort of a quick getaway with the family just to get out of town just for a day. And her and I have always wanted to go to the Art Institute of Chicago, and so that was our chosen destination, uh, much to the chagrin of our children, all right? <laughs> uh, but you know what? This one was for mom and dad. This was for mom and dad. And every now and then, kids, if you're here, every now and then, mom and dad get to play the this one's for mom and dad card. And we played that mug. We played that mug that day. All right, so... Now, walking around the Art Institute of Chicago, if you haven't been, it's really a phenomenal experience, um, phenomenal art, and it's almost too much to take in just in one day. It really is. But as I looked at artwork by Picasso, by Van Gogh, I was reminded of this virtue, humanity's ability to overcome adversity. Uh, Really, you see in art, historically, a deep connection between between art and adversity. We see it all in all different forms of art throughout history. If you pay attention to the different forms, you'll see that there is this this sort of uh, connection between creative genius and personal adversity, which is really unique. We see it all over the place. I think of John Milton's classic, A Paradise Lost. I think of Maya Angelou's, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. You think about whole artistic movements, jazz and blues, that are born out of really significant amounts of adversity. If you even just consider some of the Christian artwork that is out there, some of the stuff that we enjoy as Christians, I think of the hymn, uh, Bethany mentioned it just a few weeks ago when we sang, It Is Well With, uh, with My Soul, a classic hymn by Horatio Spafford that really was the result of an individual who experienced tremendous tragedy, tremendous suffering in his life. Think of the great African-American spirituals that were developed, created in the midst of significant, prolonged suffering and slavery. This is not just evident in our art as Christians, the connection between or the ability to overcome adversity. It's not just evident in our art as Christians, it's also evident in our roots It is, be sure of it, a part of our identity as a Christian people. It's a part of who we are. Now, we saw this truth driven home last week as we considered the story of Stephen and his martyrdom. And we considered together as a people how God uses people's pain to advance his purposes. It's what God does. He works his purposes out even in the midst of your significant pain.
pain and suffering. Folks, this is a part of our story. It's a part of who we are. You know, I think of the tragedy of Stephen. It could, on the surface, be seen like that. A significant tragedy, a blow to a movement that was building momentum, picking up steam. The story so far is a remarkable story. Jesus overcomes the cross, overcomes the tomb, comes back to life. The spirit descends on his people, signs and wonders, healings all over the place. Day by day, thousands and thousands are being added to their number. And still they're able to form this beloved community. Something that the world has really never seen before. It looks like everything is going their way. So when Stephen comes on the scene and proclaims the gospel of Jesus in the face of opposition and he is murdered, one could interpret that as, well, the opposition finally became too much. People had to scatter. They had to leave, except for the apostles, Jerusalem. The beloved community is in question. Is it going to be able to sustain such significant blow? Could be seen as a terrible tragedy. But in all actuality, what God was doing in the midst of this pain, he was answering their prayer in the most surprising and remarkable way. If you remember back in Acts 4, what did the believers ask for when Peter and John got released from prison? They asked for boldness, that they would proclaim the word of God. And God was answering their prayer. He was answering their prayer. And he was accomplishing his purposes through them. All of this was happening in the most surprising way. This, I guarantee you, is not how they would have written the script. I think for so many of us, if we consider our own lives, our own circumstances, our own pain, suffering, grief, loss, our own trial, many of us, likewise, would not have written the script like this. But this is how God wrote it. God is at work. He uses people's pain, this is remarkable, to accomplish his purposes. Now, with that being sort of the banner over the section of scripture that we're in today, the unique sort of aspect into that same theme, God accomplishing his purposes through our pain, that chapter eight sheds, the light that it gives us and adds to that claim is that and those purposes are far greater than just you and me. His purposes are for the gospel of Jesus to be proclaimed to all kinds of people. You are sitting here today. I am standing here today before you as a follower of Jesus Christ. He has saved us. If you are, have received the gift of salvation, if you've been bought by his blood, you exist, you belong to him, and you exist to live for him, to make his excellencies known throughout the nations to all kinds of people. Those, that gift of salvation, yes, it is for you, but you are also an instrument by which God chooses to work to bring his blessing, to bring his good, and to extend his grace to all kinds of people, even the ones 
you don't want to share it with. Even the ones, just to be honest, you don't get real excited about talking to. God is working his purposes out. What we'll see in this passage is that the gospel of Jesus is for all people. And his purposes in you will not fail. They won't be stopped. Now, Aiden read for us verse 9 to 25, and I am so grateful he did. But he left out verses 4 to 8. So I'm going to read 4 to 8, then I'll pray, and we'll dive in, okay? This is verses 4 to 8. Now, remember, this comes after Stephen proclaimed the gospel to the council didn't stand down. He stood tall in the face of opposition and he was murdered for it. In verses one to three, we see that Saul was there in the midst giving approval to what was happening. We learned that the apostles hunkered down in Jerusalem while everybody else scattered throughout the area. And the story picks up in verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Which city? Samaria. Much joy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word as it comes to us this very day. We thank you that we believe it to be still useful for us. In fact, it is what what gives us life, what gives us direction in this life. And we pray right now that you would use your word, which we believe to be eternal and true. Lord, would you write it on our hearts? Would you shape and form us into the people that you have called us to be? Give us the strength right now, just as the people of Samaria in their day, to pay attention and give me boldness to proclaim your word. We ask these things in the holy and precious name, amen. Now, central idea is that this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, was for all kinds of people. We see this play out in our passage this morning. And I'm going to show you sort of, we're going to focus on three different movements just as we tell the story. The first is we're going to discover in verses really four to eight, the pattern of revival, the pattern of revival. The story of verses four to eight is none other, be sure of it, than full-fledged revival. This is what we're reading about in Samaria happening in this day is something that our hearts as followers of Jesus should long for to see God do and replicate in our community, in our city. This is a revival, and this is what we want to be a part of. So what were the ingredients? What was the pattern that was used to bring the revival about? The first key aspect of the revival was that the word of God was proclaimed. The word of God was proclaimed. If you look down at verse 4, it says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In verse five, Philip would go down into the city of Samaria and he, it says, proclaimed to them the Christ. He's faithful to speaking the word 
of God. And this is vital. This is a critical aspect, a critical feature of revival, the commitment to the proclamation of God's word. Now, it's important to remember that Samaritans, the the place that he was preaching the word, the people who were hearing and paying attention to the word that was proclaimed, they were Samaritans. These were not the type of people that your typical Jewish Christian would want to associate with. There was all sorts of historical, theological, cultural things that would cause them to want to keep them sort of at an arm's distance. I'm not one of them, right? These were people you would avoid in life, not go to. And because of the persecution of Stephen, Philip finds himself going to Samaria. It's also important to know that Samaritans, while they were not Jews, they followed the first five books of the Old Testament. They would have been, as a result, familiar with the promise that God would send a prophet like Moses to eventually deliver his people. They would be familiar with that messianic promise. In fact, they held to that promise still. So when Philip comes and he preaches to them the Christ, ultimately what Philip comes to do is proclaim the good news that the waiting is over, that the Messiah whom they have been waiting for, longing for is here and his name is Jesus. This is, as I said before, an answer to what they prayed for in chapter four, that they would be filled with boldness in the face of opposition to proclaim the word of God. And the truth is we need that same boldness today. As persecution is dialed up, the temptation of the church, of the people of God, the temptation that you and I would probably find ourselves struggling with would be to keep our mouth closed Oh, speaking like that is gonna, just saw what happened to Stephen. We know what happened to Jesus. The temptation would be to close your mouth and not proclaim God's word. But here we find Philip in the most miraculous way, filled with the spirit, proclaiming a word that could ultimately get him killed. This is a key aspect to revival. And if we wanna see and be a part of it happening in our community, it's gonna require a boldness like that of Philip, that we hold fast to the word, not just for our own personal growth, yes, for that, but also for, the, for proclaiming it, for telling others about the good news that we got in on. Second feature of the revival is that not just was the word proclaimed, but these were people who were empowered by the spirit of God. You see it in verses seven and eight. The word that Philip was proclaiming is not just an ordinary word. These are not his words. And the reason we know that is because his words accompanied, they were accompanied by signs and wonders. It wasn't his creative ability or his oratory skills that were causing people to to be captivated by his message. Rather, it was that his preaching was empowered by the spirit of God. Just like we saw Peter and John in Acts 4, Philip's preaching is accompanied with signs and wonders. You see that unclean spirits are being driven out. That those who are paralyzed and lame are being healed. Philip, it is evident in this story, is filled with an extraordinary power that apart from God simply can't be explained. Can't be explained. And these signs were given These wonders were given to confirm the truth 
of the gospel. These were demonstrations. They were signposts that were given to authenticate, to validate the message that Philip was proclaiming. They were living illustrations. The idea was that you could, you could see people who, if you lived in Samaria and you knew somebody who was born lame and couldn't walk and you see them walking around. The idea was that, okay, this person healed that person. It's a living illustration ultimately to show that the message that Philip was proclaiming was not his own. But this was the very message of God. This was the real deal. You want proof? Just look around. Lives are being transformed. New life has come to our city. The sick are healed, demon-possessed are freed. This message is from God. The miracles were a sign of the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. Now we see in verse 14 a summary of what happened as a result. They heard the word, they paid attention to the word, they saw the signs, and the result in verse 14 was they received the word of God was not just that they saw the signs and were amazed. You know, this past week, we had a staff get together and I was holding Pastor Thomas's son, Silas, just an adorable, precious, precious, precious little boy. And the moon was out, it was late at night. And uh, I looked up and I saw the moon, it was bright, or I don't know, it was, just, it was in the sky, I could see it, right? I'm trying to like make small talk, because what you do with little kids, come on, get with the people, all right? So I'm holding, I'm holding Silas and I say, look at moon, moon. And you know what Silas does? Where does he look? At the end of my finger. No, I, it's, it's up there, you know? It's just, it's like about a 30 second, okay, just give up, what's this, a truck, you know, I don't know. You know, he's just, his, it, he dead-ended right on my, end of my finger. My pointing was, a, was, it was an indication of something much more glorious than my, you know, hangnails, all right? The moon but he just hung out at my finger. These signs and wonders were not given just to be amazed at what was happening in the city. They were giving to drive these people deeper into Christ, the word of Christ himself. This message is from God. They were given so they would accept the word of God. This is emphasized by the words of chapter, verse six. The people, as a result, paid attention to what was being said. Now, that's a novel concept. <laughs> they paid attention. Think of how many times in my life when I open up this Bible and within just a few seconds, my mind is all over the place. Maybe some of you are struggling with that right now. I don't blame you. They paid attention The responsibility was sort of both ways. Philip had a responsibility proclaiming the word of God and the people had a responsibility listening, hearing, paying attention to the word. It's an unusual phrase. We see that before actually when Simon was the one who has sort of having his way in the city, the people were paying attention to Simon. They were paying attention to his magic. Twice it says that. Three times this phrase, pay attention, appears in our section. It is one that we should pay attention to, all right? Underline it. And the result, proclamation of the word, a people empowered by the spirit of God, we find out in verse 19, or verse nine, produced joy in the city. 
This is the result, joy in the city. The gospel is proclaimed. People are empowered by the spirit and joy floods the whole community. This is what revival looks like. God uses and gives unusual power to the proclamation of his word. Lives that are broken and needy are transformed and the city is flooded with joy. As people become Christians, the city is filled with joy. That's not a small thing. If we long to see revival in this community, what it ultimately means is that we are going to long to see our neighbors, our colleagues, our classmates, people who we would maybe even avoid ourselves. We are gonna want to be committed not to defeating them with our arguments, but we are going to need to be committed to their joy. The joy that we have in new life that we found in Jesus, that they would know that joy. I've said it several times, the people who, are, who we rub shoulders, elbows, whatever it is we're rubbing every day throughout the week with, that we work, live next to, those people, God has put in your path, not so you can defeat and destroy them, but so that you can share your joy with them. And I, I'm afraid that with our cultural wars, the way it is going right now, it, it seems like the church is oftentimes tempted to just, nope, that's the enemy. The heart of an evangelist, the heart of Philip is one that's broken over a people who don't have joy. It's the way our heart should be too. Now I want you to just notice two things. The pattern of ministry here, the pattern that brought about the revival, while it's extraordinary because the Spirit of God has sort of has given an extraordinary result in, uh, in what's happening here, the ingredients aren't any different to what we would say is how we just make disciples. What we've said you know, over and over and over again, that the idea of making disciples is just faithfully proclaiming the, the word of God by the spirit of God to the people of God patiently over time. That's precisely what's happening here. These are ordinary means of grace. Philip's not doing anything outside of just what God's called him to do. There's no smoke machine, right? It doesn't give any indication that he is doing anything to adjust the message, to make it more palatable, subtract this, add that, insert this. It's just faithfully preaching Christ. Second thing I want you to notice is that this is just an ordinary dude. So far, since deacons have been instituted in the church, Stephen was murdered, deacon number one. Deacon number two, Philip, goes to Samaria, the place most despised by most of the Jews, and is a part of a significant revival, a, part, a serious part of your history and mine as the people of God. This is what a deacon looks like, okay? It's an ordinary dude. Second thing, we have first the pattern of the revival. Second thing I want you to notice is the preservation of unity. 
Now, following the breakout of this revival, after hearing the news of what's going on in Samaria, the, the apostles, we learned, decide to send Peter and John to sort of go and check it out. Send them down to Samaria. And upon arriving, we're told that Peter and John discover something that is altogether very unusual for them. And as we read it today, it's likely very unusual for us as well. It should be. Verse 15 says, they came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for they had not, he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we, we learned that while they heard, the people of Samaria heard the word proclaimed by Philip, and they, they believed even in that word, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus, they still lacked something, which is unusual, the Holy Spirit. He had not yet fallen on them. This is unusual. When I first read through the passage earlier on when we were mapping out the passages, I thought, okay, this is gonna be, this is gonna be an interesting one. How why, the first question that was asked in my, in my head when I was reading this is, why did God do it like that? It's, it's certainly, it's an unusual pattern. We don't see the pattern repeated throughout the book of Acts. And in fact, it's so unusual because in Acts chapter two, when, if you remember when Peter is preaching and, and people hear him and they say, what must we do to be saved? His response is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. See, the normal pattern that Peter proclaimed that we see throughout the book of Acts, the normal pattern, this is, this is the promise of God and it's the pattern of God. That when you come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus, you are given the spirit of God who indwells you. This, this is the normal pattern. So what we read about here in Acts chapter eight is unusual in that regard. Certainly the spirit we know is at work in the town of Samaria. He was at work through Philip, but these people had not yet received him. So the question we should be asking when we read this is, this is unusual. So it should, if we're paying attention, it should kind of perk our ears up a little bit and we should say, why? Why has God chosen to not follow the pattern that is consistent and sort of prescribed? Why? Well, it's an unusual thing because the circumstances were unusual as well. The, the answer to the question why, the answer to that question is really found in the idea of geography. Why did God leave his normal pattern and allow the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit only after Peter and John came? It's related to the fact that this is Samaria. The answer to the question why is found in the place, Samaria. If you remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus told his apostles, the disciples, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This verse 1.8 sort of hangs as a banner over all of the book of Acts. It's sort of the contents page. If you want a quick summary of what is happening is that the, the, the gospel, the kingdom of God is advancing, picking up steam as it goes, first in Jerusalem, then throughout Judea, then into Samaria, 
and then to the ends of the earth. And we see this play out throughout the book of Acts. We see right here, Philip brings it to Samaria. Then in Acts 10, Peter takes it to the Gentiles. And then eventually Paul will carry it all the way to Rome. It's the way the book of Acts is written. This is how God had designed it to be. He had commissioned them to go and take the message to the ends of the earth. That this message was not exclusively just for them. It was for all kinds of people. Even those you detest. The apostles hearing that the fire was spreading to Samaria, they want to go see it for themselves. And it's only at this point that the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. Why? Because this is God's special way of preserving unity among his people. That's what I'm convinced of. This, another way of saying it, is God's way of keeping his people together. It's God's way of keeping a people who had formerly been apart and of their own choosing would not want to be together. This is his way of preserving unity. As I said before, this Samaritan group of people, there were long historical, cultural, theological differences. Imagine what this would have produced for Peter and John. The result of it kind of went both ways for the church at Samaritan, but also at Samaria, but also the church at Jerusalem. For Peter and John to come down and see for themselves that these people who they've been keeping at an arm's distance for their whole life have now believed in the same truth. Peter and John, seeing it for themselves, couldn't deny that these people love Jesus. And so imagine going back to Jerusalem, being able to say, you should see what's happening down there. The gospel is advancing, it's spreading, it's, Samaria's caught up in it. For them, it would be an encouragement that yes, these people, the people you hate, God is saying, they are mine too. Don't forget it. Do not forget it. These men and women who are believing, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You wouldn't have chosen it this way, but it is precisely how God drew it up. And for the Samaritan church, also lots of, lots of cultural baggage for the, for the church of Samaritan, this would keep them from becoming their own autonomous people. They are one people, ethnically diverse. Christ died to make one people, one new man. They are one family. Like I said, this was unique. It's not how it happens today but it's, there's still a very important lesson for us to learn. See, the church had preached the gospel throughout Jerusalem. You remember what their assignment was? Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And what had they done? They preached it throughout Jerusalem. And then they preached it throughout Jerusalem. And then they preached it through, throughout Jerusalem. You see what's going on here? They are not fulfilling the commandment of Jesus. This is a big problem. They had not been obedient. But now through Stephen's martyrdom, God's people have, are forced to embrace his purposes. Now, if you remember back to last week when we looked at Stephen's 
message in its entirety. Well, a good portion of it. It was a long message, all right? But this was one of Stephen's central ideas, is that you can't box God in into one building or into one country or into one people. God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He appeared to him there. When Joseph was sent to Egypt, God was with him there. When Moses was into Midian for 40 years, guess where God was? With Moses. Wasn't bound by the temple or bound by the location. God's purposes in Christ are that the word is that the word would be proclaimed throughout the nations and that disciples would be formed of all kinds of people, even the ones you don't like. This was not how these people would have drawn up the script. What will it take? for you and me to take God at his word. The early church wasn't until Stephen was murdered. Suffering and persecution was required to get his people to just do what he said. That's how God works. He thrusts us into his work by means that we would never choose. Now, while you may think, ooh, what does that mean for me? The good news in that is that as we look around our life and for some of us, the mess that it's become, and we find ourselves asking, what in the world is going on? And what am I gonna do? Guess who's not wringing their hands? God has you precisely where he wants you. And his purposes in you, while it may not be the way you drew it up, his purposes in you and for you will not fail. They won't fail. What will it take for us, for me, to take God at his word and to obey him no matter what? Now, the final scene that we see seen the pattern of revival. We saw the preservation of unity. And the fa- final scene that we see, I, I tried really hard to find another P, okay? We had the pattern, the preservation. I couldn't find another P. So I just gave up at about six this morning. The final point is the exposure. Now, there's a P in that word, so whatever. Perseverance, nah, it's not quite, it's not, yeah, let me finish, let me finish. And you'll take that one back, all right? The exposure of sin, The last scene that we see is the exposure of sin. Now, we read stories like this in Acts, and if you're like me throughout, sort of even throughout history, we see revivals take place. God do really remarkable things at a certain place in a certain season. And you might find yourself like me thinking, how amazing would it be to be a part of that, to watch that unfold firsthand, to see these signs and wonders? How awesome would it be to to be this close to the action To be caught up in a revival like this, to see the grace of God in such powerful display and the power of God to be so undeniable. While that's true, it would be really remarkable to be there. There's also a dark side. It's times like this where the light shines 
so bright that that which is in darkness becomes exposed. And we see this play out in Simon's life. Times of revival are great. They are also times of exposure. Coming of the Holy Spirit, ultimately what it reveals to us is that we aren't holy. Now, the city of Samaria had been wonderfully delivered from the influence and the power of Simon, the magician, by the preaching of Philip. Previously, it was his voice, like we said, that they had paid attention to. Even more, Simon himself would, would eventually profess faith in Christ. This is a remarkable story. Baptized in Christ, this seems almost too good to be true. Yet, it is. The truth of Simon would ultimately be exposed. In verse 17, if you look down, you see that Simon comes to the apostles when he sees that the spirit is given by the laying on of the hands from the apostles. And what does he do? In verse 19, he offers them money. He's like, wow, that's some magic that I ain't never seen before. Let me get some of that, right? What's it gonna cost? How much do I gotta pay? Verse 19, he says, give me some of this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I want in on this. I thought I was good, but y'all are like next level. How awesome. These men could just with a touch give the Spirit's power. He's ready to empty his pockets, whatever he could give or do, that he might access this power as well. Well, Peter's response at Simon's request, we see in verse 20, could not be more severe I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this in his translation called The Message. How does Peter respond in verse 20 to this request? It says this, to hell with your money and you along with it. To hell with your money. To the place of eternal torment with you and your money. Those are some strong words. Peter recognizes that the request, ultimately he recognizes the request for what it is. Simon's request is a lust for power, not a longing for grace. Simon's request is a hunger for influence rather than a desire to serve and to love and to give. What's Simon after? Wants to make a name for himself. Peter then goes on to accuse Simon of two things. He says, your heart is not right before God. And then he says that he's being controlled by bitterness. In fact, it's so bad, maybe some of you guys have had this happen to you too, when, when, you, when sin has kind of bubbled up to the surface to the place where you can't deny it. It's so bad in Simon's life that when given the chance to pray, what does he do? He says, no, y'all pray for me. I ain't praying, you pray. Not totally sure what comes of this, but it's significant. In fact, in our study so far, while we have seen some amazing things as the Spirit has caught fire in the early church in its early days, we've also seen some stories that should 
terrify us. So far, this is one of three. You remember the first one was Judas, who betrayed Jesus for money. There's very similar root sins going on here. Maybe there's some bitterness in Judas's life as he sees Jesus emerge, and he wants to get close to the action, but he wants to gain from it. See the same thing in Ananias and Sapphira? They falsified their givings, laid dead. Here we see it in Simon as bitterness has so captured and encapsulated his heart that the gospel can't penetrate it. Peter says, to hell with your money and you along with it. This should terrify us. And it it reveals to us a truth that is consistent throughout time. That as the Holy Spirit as God draws near to us, the truth about you becomes clear. As God draws near to me, the truth about me becomes clear. For Simon, bitterness was exposed. The exhortation was for him to bend his knee to Jesus, to repent and confess his sins, but Simon couldn't even do it. Now, the good news about the gospel is that there is no mess here. I mean, what we know to be true about God from the Bible is that God hears and he knows. He knows the stuff in our life. He knows the stuff in our heart. And there is no mess in this room that God can't, better say it like this, that God doesn't want to enter into. There's no sin that is beyond his saving. And the only, this is the, mm, the this, this is amazing. The only prerequisites for us are that we are broken, that we are needy, that we are sinners and sufferers in need of a savior. That's it. Might we follow this very morning as we think about what's the truth, what's true about me? As God draws near and this sin is exposed, might we turn to Jesus and not from him? Might we wrap our arms around him, bend our knee to him, and ask of him forgiveness for those sins? And the Bible says, you ask for it, you get it. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That is the good news of the gospel. You see, folks, Simon wanted to be close to what was going on. He wanted to just reap from its benefits. No real repentance, no real faith. Just wanted to be close to the action so he could gain influence. Simon didn't want. Simon wanted 
the benefits of the gospel, not the God of the gospel. And ultimately, that's what he offers to us, himself. So don't run away from him. Run to him, and no matter how messy, no matter how broken, exhausted you are, he will gladly receive you with his open arms. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and just are reminded that we are a sinful people. And as your word is opened, as your spirit draws near, our sin and filth are exposed. It's just the natural result. And we thank you this morning that you are a God um, who who comes, sees us in our poverty and gives up his riches to draw near to us. That's who you are. Father, my prayer is that we would do precisely the same thing that you have done for us, that you have extended grace and mercy to us, though we don't deserve it. Might you give us the the ability and the boldness to look around and see people in our life that you have placed there strategically who are without God and without hope in this world and the next, that we might proclaim to them the Christ, that it might be for their joy. We thank you that your purposes aren't halted because we're having a bad day or because we're going through significant trials, but that you are a God who even in our weakness, that is where you do your finest work. And so I pray you would strengthen us. I pray that you would encourage us. But we leave this place this morning with confidence that those purposes that you designed from the beginning of time for us will not fail. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.